Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. <clears throat> okay, here we go. They say great things come in threes. Great stuff. The great days we're living, bro. That's just that Unfortunately, not in this case. What is this? But maybe someday it will be. Can you believe that? Okay, world, hold on to your collective. It's time for the Bam Slam Podcast. With Ben Fletcher, Allison Ratzlaff, and Mike Costa. You guys, I'm so excited about our guest tonight, our first real important guest. In addition to being the third longest tenured reporter for the sidelines for NFL on Fox and Westwood One National Radio, she has covered many Super Bowls, hosted the Olympics, covered World Series, NBA, and NHL championships, college bowl games, You name it, Laura has done it. Now she's embarking on what she calls the second act of her career, and she's here to tell us all about that. Here's my accomplished, talented, beautiful friend, Laura Oakman. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the Bam Slam podcast. So excited you're here. What a lovely introduction. Thank you, Allison. And hello, gentlemen. I'm thrilled to be on. Hey, Laura. Thank you so much for the time tonight. Oh, I'm so excited to be on with you guys. So thank you for having me. Well, it's just a pleasure to have you, and I want to get right into Galvanize. Um, I'm so lucky to be a part of it. It's really been life-changing for me, and I think you know that, Um, but the audience probably doesn't, uh, our audience may not know much about it, so I would love for you to talk about what inspired you to start Galvanize and how you've built it to what it is now. I think you'll get this so much, Allison, but I I started it because I just started seeing all of these wonderful young women getting thrown into these opportunities in the sports industry, which I thought was awesome and loved seeing more and more women since, you know, I've been in this for 30 years now, but I just saw them getting thrown in so fast and so high. And I just was like, oof, I'm really glad this didn't happen to me. I'm really glad I I had a slower trajectory. I'm so glad I would have been able to make, that I was able to make mistakes in a smaller place. And I could could grow to get to NFL and Fox or get to Fox Sports. But I just was seeing all these young women getting thrown in really early. And I just started thinking, what can I do? I just, I knew I couldn't fix the system. I knew I wouldn't be able to change anything, but I just thought, okay, so what can I do? And I just wanted to give them something I never had growing in this business, which was a great network of women, because I wasn't worried about them on camera. That stuff's going to come, you know, Mm -hmm. with time and with experience and with reps. But I knew that there was a lot to navigate in the sports world. It's not black and white. It's all gray. And that's where I I just was like, gosh, they need a lot of help here. And I'm just really fortunate that I started seeing this happen when I was older, because I, if it happened when I was younger, when I was in my 20s or my 30s, I think I just would have been judgmental of the women. And I would have been like, oh, they're not ready. You know, oh, why are they here? They shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't be here if they're not ready. But I'm really fortunate that it happened when I was older and I was at a motherly age <laughs> and much more protective than judgmental. And just really thinking, what can I do? And it started with 
taking four months to find tr- 20 women who wanted to get in a room for two days and and and, uh, and try to try to um, to think about how I could help. And now it's grown. It's grown from, you know, four months to find 20 women to over twenty five hundred women have taken part. And we now for every workshop we have when we had them in person, we'd have a wait list of about 30 women for each one. And so it's it's been magnificent. It's just it, it went from you know just an idea of how can I help to really being um, a, a network of women that I would have killed for, and that I'm just so appreciative of now. Not just that they have each other, but it's given me so much purpose in my life too. Yeah, I I know that for me the network that I've become a part of because of you has just it, it like I said it was life changing, and um, the people that I talk to. Every day, I mean, um, Alexa in Buffalo, New York. I mean, mm-hmm. she and I are, you know, we're buddies, and so it's so mm-hmm. nice to have people that you can talk to about things and and go to and feel your leadership leading everybody. It's uh, it's incredible what you've done for women in sports. Uh, I, I so appreciate that, and and I think it just. I always think about, gosh, I, you know, like I said, I would have killed for this at, at, in my 20s. I would have killed for it in my 30s, but I killed for it in my 40s. But if I would have had it, I wouldn't have wanted to create it. So I'm, I'm, I feel like the universe gave me such a good gift, you know, that if I would have grown up in this business and felt supported and, and supported other people, I just don't think I would have seen the void so much. And, and it's exactly what you said. You know, I love the mentoring part and I love being, you know, I love being um, being here to coach and being to mentor and all of that. But for everybody to have another group of women who are their age and going through it, I just think that's, that's pretty significant because it's really easy for me to stand up in front of a workshop for two days and talk about my lessons and what I learned from and what I did, but they're going through it right now. And so... I think there's a, there's a huge role for mentoring and being able to help them guide it. But I think the meaningful stuff is really having a group of women at your age while you're going through it to really go, how are we handling this together? And I think, I think that's, I think that can change the way, you know, any male prevalent businesses for women. And that's pretty much any business because they pretty much mostly are. So it's, it's been, it's been wonderful. And I'm so appreciative of women like you who've come in there and, and, and I think wrapped your arms around all these women and listening, listening to what they say, but you also have been one of the most important voices uh, of things you've gone through and experiences you've had. And I know how much they hang on your every word. So that's what I love about Galvanize so much. It's, I always say it's every age, it's every stage, you know, we're from 18 years old to fifties. And it's amazing how you think you go in as a mentor and suddenly you're the one that's, you know, being menteed or being mentored by the mentee. You know, my 20-year-olds teach me a lot because I certainly wasn't confident like they are at 20. And um, they teach me every day about social media and all of these things. (laughs) And I hope, you know, at the same time, the older women also give so much to the younger ones, too. But I love how reciprocal it is. Laura, we know that for the longest time, sports broadcasting was uh, it was a men's club. It was the good old good old boys network, and unfortunately, people are still going to come across Neanderthals in this business. As you mentor these broadcasters of yours, how much time do you spend with them, and how to deal with coming across somebody who says, "Hey, you look great in that dress. You look great in those jeans. 
and and knowing that they're they're not being respected because they're awesome at what they do just because they're a pretty face. And I love that you asked that. You know, one of the we talk about it a ton. We we talk about that more than everything and anything. To be really honest, you know, I think sometimes when Gal and I started twelve years ago now. But when it started, it was mostly women on camera, and that was really easy because that's what I knew. And then it, it's really grown. So we have women in every stage in, of sports, you know, in every different, um, every different department, every different world in, in the sports world. And what we all have in common is, is everything that you just said, is trying to navigate all of that. And so I think that's a huge part of what we try to figure out. But what also was so wonderful is we we need our great male allies. So we do spend a lot of time talking about the tough stuff that we go through. And also, I'm very big on naming names and making sure that we all say who um, who is either a fake ally or who is just you know aggressive or has done anything inappropriate. Because I really am tired of protecting the bad men. I really want to make sure that we're protecting each other as women. But I also want to make sure that I say. Every galvanized workshop we do, we're with men. You know, that we team up with a lot of NFL teams. They give us their rookie class. And so there's a lot of empathy and respect training between the women and between the men. And I make sure that we always have, a, you know, one of my favorite male speakers, you know, comes and speaks. Charles Davis has done it. Stuart Scott did it. Um, gosh, Jay Glazer has done it. Jacob Ullman, my boss, has done it. I, I, I'm leaving out so many great men and, and a ton of great men. You know, Dan Quinn has done it and um, and and all these incredible men from uh, the NFL. So we do talk a lot about that, but we also really talk about how wonderful the great men are and making sure that we're not living in a vacuum of two days of just women. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people can be like, it's two days bashing men, and it, we, it couldn't be further from the truth. It teaches them how to navigate difficult men, challenging men, um, and when you shouldn't be navigating it, how to get out of it, how to make sure that you're going to the, through the proper channels. And also making sure that we're leaning on the good guys and making sure that we talk about not just, hey, who's inappropriate or who um, who's offensive, but we do a lot of talking about who's your who's your mentor that's a man. So we can also make sure that we're thanking them, that we're sending other women to them. So I think that's one of the most important parts of any women's empowerment group. It's making sure that we don't just stay in, in a little circle or a little vacuum of women. Cause that's not how this industry is. And I don't ever want them to think it is. Laura, when you're dealing with young female broadcasters, what's the biggest piece of advice you give them when they're first starting out to maybe make sure they avoid some of the pitfalls that Costa was describing in his last question? You know, I, I think the first thing is, the most important thing is they now have a sisterhood. And I get so many women who come in not trusting women because most of us were guys, girl. I know I was. And so I didn't have girlfriends. I, I you know, wasn't a sorority uh, sorority girl. And I didn't have a tight circle of friends and, and I didn't trust them. I, I really was, I was with guys my whole life. And so the biggest thing right away is making sure they know that the sisterhood is real and to trust, you know, trust themselves and to trust these women and make sure they lean. And I always say, just don't waste this, you know, that there's so many women my age who would have, you know, again, killed for it. So make sure you take advantage of it. But the biggest thing I try to really um, instill in them is something that this is for the young men starting too, but 
especially for young women. When you get into the sports world, you are told constantly from the get-go, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not wanted. Um, you, we, we have no use for you. You're not right, and you don't know anything. And and you, that that's drowning sometimes, you know, those voices. And what can happen, I know it did with me, was those voices become your voice. And so suddenly you start wondering if you know what you're talking about and maybe my questions are bad and maybe I don't know anything and maybe um, nobody does want me around. And you start that starts weighing on you. And so the biggest thing I always try to instill is making sure our own voice is louder than all those other negative voices. And that's already challenging, but also how to make your voice really positive. So it's it's not just you saying, you know, you beating yourself down while the other people are, you know, while the outsiders are, it's making sure that your voice is saying you're terrific and you do belong. And that's a great question, or that wasn't a great question. I'm going to do better in the next one. And so we work a lot on that, making sure that our voices are really positive and making sure that they are louder than the negative ones, because the negative ones are deafening and that's the one thing, you know, I didn't have growing up in this business. I, I didn't deal with the social media voices. And that's tough, you know, that they, they can never turn it off. Um, they're constantly hearing people say things about them or, you know, about a picture, about a story they did. And that's the thing that worries me most is how much this business can really rock your confidence. And so it took me until I was 40 years old to gain confidence and really know I was good and to believe in myself. And so I always am like, if that's the one thing I hope I instill is as a bunch of women who are confident in themselves and their voice. Um, and then I, I, I'd be really happy with what the galvanize has done. So in 2002, you released a children's book about your late mother. It's called Mommy Has Cancer. And while that's a little heavier than what we're doing with, you're so used to giving advice to the young generation. Now we ask you to give advice to a 56-year-old man who just wrote his own children's book. Oh, yeah. Mike, yes, Mike Costa. Did. I did, Laura. And, and I'll, have, I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Until Ben just mentioned it seconds ago, I didn't know this. But you can expect a phone call from me probably probably <laughs> tomorrow because I only have like a bazillion questions to ask uh, as far as this subject's concerned. Oh, what what is it on? I love that you're doing this. It's uh it's about a guy who uh, was orphaned um, as a young boy in Africa, and when he got out of the orphanage, he went back and got the piece of land that he grew up on, and he's been collecting all these different misfit animals. Like he has a a green giraffe and a yellow elephant. He's got a, a red monkey and an orange gazelle. And the only thing that's mm. missing is a rhino. And so he finds his rhino and he calls him Big Blue Lou. And that's the that's mm. basically the story, him finding Big Blue Lou and Lou completing their rainbow of misfit animals. Oh, I love this so much. Uh, <laughs> that is wonderful. I I know for me, so tell me if this was your case, it's like you said, it's it's very different subject matter, but I'm quite sure that you have, that this is, this is based on something that you've gone through or someone in your family has. And I know when my mom died, it was so long ago, it was in 1995 and there were no books back then about how to deal with losing a mother. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was 21, 22 and I struggled so much when my mom, the last month of her life, 
I just would, she'd be in chemo or she'd be doing radiation. And so I'd leave her room for a minute or she'd leave my room or she'd leave uh, the room. And I would walk to every bookstore I could in downtown Chicago trying to find something to help me. And I couldn't back then. And so I, I just remember going, gosh, I'm, you know, at the time I thought 22 was old. So I was like, at least I understand what's going on. But what do you do if you're a kid going through this? And your mom is still alive, but battling cancer. And so I said back then, one day when my heart heals enough, uh, I will hopefully write an adult book. But the first thing that I want to do is write a kid's book to to help them go through it. So it took me until 2002. And it's the journey I'm sure you're on now um, with that whole, with that publishing world and trying to learn a whole new world. Oh, yeah. But I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's a different satisfaction when you kids reading your words and when parents will say things to you about your book makes a difference so i i love that you did that and i love the idea of that book well once it's uh published and once it it's actually physically in front of me i will make sure to send you the very first autographed copy <laughs> there's a promise yes. <laughs> i love i absolutely love that yes please yes please and thank you got you. it <laughs> laura you mentioned uh chicago um with when you were, you know, when your mom was sick. And um, I know that's where you started out as a young sportscaster. And I know just real quick, I just want to ask you about covering Michael Jordan. Was it just, Mm. I just gives me chills to think about what you experienced with all of that amazing team in the nineties. It's just like you said, as a Chicago girl, I I just, I mean, boy, did I get fortunate, right? I'm not going to say lucky. I don't believe in that, but um, I was really fortunate because I was really young and I was in over my head. And to be covering the Bulls, you know, in the, in the heyday was, was huge. And again, at the time where there weren't many women doing it. And it was the experience of a lifetime. And, I, you know, I met him when he was playing baseball. I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and, um, and we had the Chattanooga Lookout to double-A Cincinnati baseball team and they were in the same um the same group as the Birmingham Barons and so I got to also meet Michael when he was the humble Michael you know that it was a very different Michael in that world and so he was he was in Birmingham for that year and then when he left back to Chicago that was my timing also I went to Chicago from Chattanooga and and so I was really fortunate where I, I had a relationship with him because mm-hmm. if I was just one more reporter thrown into that circus, I would have probably never had a one-on-one relationship. Mm-hmm. But it was one one very early lesson for me about building relationships and about um, getting to know him as a person. And I remember one time uh, he was walking through the United Center and I was running to ask him something and I just kind of, you know, like staked him out or stalked him out while he's walking in for a game and I'm running to him and I I knew I had like 40 seconds from him walking in that hallway to where he got in the locker room and he walked in and I just was like Michael just you know got right in his face and he was like oh slow down slow down he's like I I know you know I get it and I know you have something and I know that you know I'm busy and I know that we don't have much time but you can just stop for a second and say hello. Like, we can do that. Wow, that's so <laughs> cool. That's great, great, you know, just learning lesson for a young reporter to just kind of stop and take a breath and go, hi, Michael, how are you? And him go, I'm good, how are you? 
Yeah, because and they're people I, too. They want people to realize that. 100%. And so that's changed, that shaped me. So even now, it's one of the first things I always tell, you know, my reporters is even a post game after an NFL game. And a lot of times, you know, we're waiting for that star player and it's real quick. They've got to run to us. We got to do quick, two quick questions and we got to like throw them away so they can get into the locker room. It's really fast. And I always make sure before I start that interview to say, great game, Drew, you know, like terrific, so terrific seeing you. I'm glad we're meeting here. Thanks for coming over. I will make sure even in a rush that I take 10 seconds to connect as a human being. And I don't know, you know, and, and so I, I constantly will say that to all my young women, which is just making sure that we're not looking at them as contacts or as sources, but making sure you always take that second to enter, to connect as human beings. But anyway, I say that thing. I've got about 10 of those that I learned from Michael and from Charles Barkley and from that group back then. And I'm really, really fortunate again that that's how I grew up as a reporter were incredible lessons from, um, you know, once in a lifetime kind of players and personalities. And it really shaped me and it spoiled me. You know, when I see guys who aren't great with the media or don't handle the responsibility well, I'm always like, man, Michael talked after every single game. You know, we never wondered if Michael was going to talk and we never wondered if Michael was going to come in, you know, pissy you know, and just in a bad mood. It's just he was he was a pro. He came in and he was dressed. He would never have done an interview naked. You know, he got his clothes on and he was always so professional and so respectful when it came to those interviews. And so I, I look at a lot of the young guys now and I always want to be like, oh man, if Michael Jordan did this every day for 82 games, you can suck it up and do it, you know, once a week or whatever. So it, just, it, was, it was a great way to learn from him, to, you know, to marvel at him and also to set the bar for me, you know, of what, how I look at every other athlete since him. I love um, when you talk about how important it is to build relationships and not sources. And I think that I've heard you say that before in some of our groups that we've been in together. And so, and you mentioned it again in, when you were talking about Michael. And I, I just think that's really, really great advice for everybody in any line of work, um, no matter what you're doing. It's just a huge part of life is, but in the sports world, when, you know, people are always looking to be first and to have the source to build those relationships is how you really get the stories, which I think are what people care about the most. Yeah, I, I feel like that too. And I just know, I, you know, as you were saying it, I was trying to think of an example and this, this is one of my favorite ones, but my, you know, Allison, you know this, but my best friend for over 20 years was Stuart Scott. And so the day that Stuart passed away, I got a call at about three in the morning from his sister. And she called about, you know, four or five of us just saying, okay, it's happening. And so we were up at about 3 a.m. And she said, you know, it's happening. And, and can everybody just kind of sit up and right now just say prayers as he's going? And that was at about 3 a.m. And I had a playoff game. I was in Indianapolis when that happened. And I just was struggling after he passed. What do I do? Do I go work this game? Which sounded horrible. But the only thing that sounded worse was getting on a plane back to Los Angeles by myself. Yeah. And I struggled for hours um, until game time. And finally, I decided, you know, I really was like, what would Stuart tell me to do? And I knew what he would have said, which was get your ass to a playoff game. You know, <laughs> like I knew he would have killed to be at a playoff game. And so 
all I know is I was a wreck, obviously, and I got to the field. It was pregame, and I went over to Chuck Pagano, and Chuck knew Stort through, you know, when Chuck had cancer, so they connected. And I just started crying and telling to Chuck, I, I need help right now. I don't know how I'm going to do this. You know, I don't want to be here, but I don't know what else to do or where else I should go. And, and I'm going to let my work down and I'm letting myself down. And, and Chuck sat there, you know, before a playoff game when he was the head coach for probably 20 minutes. And we sat and cried and talked about cancer and talked about sport and talked about lessons. And he really helped me and told me exactly what I needed to do to get through that game. And I just, I think about that all the time in my relationship with with Chuck. And I can't think of a time that I've even interviewed Chuck. You know, I've known mm-hmm. him for so many years and I just can't think of a time that I ever, you know, went to him and said, I need this because it was just enough to have a relationship with him. It still is. And so I just, you know, if, if you, if you do this business right, like any business, when you're finished, you're going to walk away and, and you're going to hopefully, you know, hopefully have those kind of memories with a whole bunch of people. And I hope that when people talk about me, they're not going to talk about a story I did or about, you know, an interview I did. I hope they're going to talk about how I made them feel. And I hope they're going to talk about, um, you know, about a story like that with me. And so I think about that a lot and just go, if I just would have been focused on the stories or the sources, I just, would have had such a hole in this whole business, you know, that my, my life has been so full because of these relationships. And that took, again, that took till I was probably 40 to really understand the magnitude of it. And that's always my hope is I can teach people to do that younger because you're going to change your job. You're going to, you know, your microphone letters are going to change just like a player's jersey Mm -hmm. will or logo Mm -hmm. will, but the relationships with everybody stays the same. Well, Laura, you know, some people talk about wanting to, change the world, you know, in some way, not everybody is able to achieve that, but you're one person that is achieving it. And I'm so, so thankful to you and for what you're doing for so many people. I mean, it really is life changing and I appreciate you so much. And I'm so glad our, our listeners are getting to know you that may not have known this whole other part of you besides what they have seen on television. Um, People go follow Laura at Laura Oakman on Twitter at Galvanize Life on Twitter and LauraOakman.com. And I love you and thank you so much for doing this for us. Uh, I love you. I adore you. I love this show with three magnificent people. That these guys, guys are the best. You, These guys are amazing. Uh, that's the first thing she told me behind your back, you guys. And um, I can't thank you guys enough for having me and, and doing and just having a conversation. And not I know there's a lot going on in the world of sports right now, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate just settling into a conversation about life in the middle of that. So thank you for having me, and I'm wishing you so, so, so much good fortune as you continue to crush this podcast. Who cares about the other stuff in sports? We want to know more about you. <laughs> Costa is going to send you the very first copy, minted, absolutely, of Big Blue Lou, and we can't wait to see what else you do. And we can't wait to get you back on again. Yes, Laura, thank you yes. so much. I, I'm not officially a friend of the show, you guys. I was a friend of Allison's coming in, and now I'm a friend of the show. Period. Thank Aww. you so much for having me. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.